There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Tan Studio right here in Clark Fork, Idaho. And today is, uh, what, June 14th, I believe we are recording this, so I'll try to get it out as soon as possible. But I got uh, somebody I've... The, this this concept or the the idea of this kind of episode has been brewing for a while. I've really wanted, and I if you guys listened to the last episode with Michael Batiste, you heard me asking for somebody that is really good whether they're a camp cook or a chef or, or uh, whatever, I, I can't think of anybody better for this. Uh, and his name is Jeremiah Doughty. Jeremiah, did I did I pronounce your last name right, dude? Uh, you nailed it. Yeah, I, I, was, I was waiting to correct you, so you got it good. <laughs> well, it helps, man, because I listened to a couple of your episodes earlier today. So uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty rough around the edges when it comes to pronouncing names, so I wanted to make sure I got that right. So he has a, he has a platform in a, in a website called From Filled to Plate, and I'm sure that many of you know him. Uh, we were introduced through our buddy that does the Hunting Stories podcast and, um, and a few others, actually. And Jeremiah, I just appreciate you being here, dude. This is going to be cool. Yeah, man, I appreciate you being on uh, the same coast and time zone as me. Yeah, I can't tell yeah. you how many of these I how many of these I do at six a.m. or or weird times because all these East Coast guys that were like, "Oh, we're going to do it." All right. So when you said West Coast, I was like, "Finally." I know, man. It's it's crazy because the, the it's it's crazy when you think about the time di- difference between where we're at. Like I'm in North Idaho. And so because of the way, and I think it's because of how close Spokane, Washington is to like the panhandle of Idaho, they put us on the Pacific time, which is super handy most of the time, except for when we get, you know, like you were saying, somebody on the East Coast, it's a big time difference. Now, where, oh, yeah. where are all, you? It's always well, frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super frustrating. They're like, it's also weird when they're celebrating New Year's Eve, like four hours before us <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> or Hawaii or, or eight hours before Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, man. Um, where are you located at? Uh, I'm, I'm down deep in the South, you know, Southern California. So <laughs> where I like to say, you know, the, the hunting Mecca of the world. Yes, and, sir. And. Yeah, no, it's not. We're we're the most anti-hunting sometimes, it seems like. But, uh, yeah, no, I'm down here, you know, close to Disneyland, right by the beach, down in uh, near Huntington Beach, California, so down south. Is that is that where you're from originally? Born and raised. Born and raised in uh, Long, Long Beach, Lakewood area. Uh, so me and Snoop Dogg got something in common. Yeah, you bet you do. Are you a big Snoop Dogg fan then or what? Uh, I'm a music fan, so whatever's on, I'll listen to it. <laughs> so I'm curious, with being in Southern California, what what's the weather like right now? Uh, it has been June gloom and May crappy for the past since February. I think we've seen the sun two or three days. It feels like we're in, you know, Washington. Um, 
it's it's pretty bad. Like like today, I I didn't see the sun at all. It's just gray. So. So uh, okay, so I'm, that's that's what I'm curious about because it's been like that here too. It's been a super wet June. We had like this week or two in May where it felt like it was July or August, and we were actually at the uh, down the road. There's this this uh, pond. My girls like to swim in, and we'll go down there and like you know barbecue burgers or something on the on the beach. And we we've already done that. And now it's like way too cold to even consider that. I think it's 52 degrees today. Um, it's good for spring bear hunting though, because uh, you know bear hunting continues on, and, I, and the goal this year is to get my girls a bear. So we're going up after after you and I are done here, and uh, see what we could do. But this weather's been insane. Is it good that it's been like that, like climate wise down there? Have you because I I heard you guys are there's been like a drought going on in California. Well, there's there's always a drought in California. We're a desert, um, and it's I mean we've got snowpack on all all the mountains still. Like, I think, man, this is going to be open until, like, 4th of July weekend mm-hmm. uh, to go down there and ski and snowboard. So, but that's eight hours away. But down here in the south, it's, we are what we are. And weather-wise, I think everyone's sick of wearing sweatshirts. They all want to wear their, you know, I'm still wearing flip-flops in 60-degree weather. But, um, yeah, everyone's really waiting for the beach. Because you still go to the beach on the weekends, and it's all cold and windy, and there's still people out in the in the water. They're just, they're ready for summer to rear its evil head. So, yeah, interesting. So, Tell me a little bit about you, man, because if for the just for the audience sake, you and I have never met. This is the first time we're talking. We talked for, you know, like five minutes before we hit record here. Um, and I, I don't know how that's even possible because you've got this huge Instagram and uh, it's all like centered around, um, you know, wild game and, and, and cooking and preparing wild game and I love like your tagline on your Instagram. It says, I believe in God. You're a chef. You're a writer, podcaster, husband, father. Uh, and the real trophy is the one you put on the plate. And so that's that stuff is right up my alley, man. Um, and so I don't know how, but tell me a little bit about you and how somebody in your neck of the woods has connected to hunting and wild game, uh, you know, cooking and, and all these things that, that is kind of, that makes up the, the platform of field to plate, um, and how that all worked out. Yeah. I mean, long story short, it, I was born and raised here, born and raised in the surf, born and raised fishing, uh, and upland game bird hunting. That's huge in Southern California. We are all about birds. Uh, we're the very last stop for the Pacific flyway. Half the ducks don't even make it to Mexico because of our weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they'll just sit around. So birds have always been my bread and butter. You know, you put a shotgun in my hand and stuff's going to die. Uh, you can ask, you know, that's pretty much what anyone that hunts with me tells, will tell you that. Like bird hunting is still my absolute passion. Started when I was six years old hearing stories of grandpa and dad laying, you know, sleeping on the back of the truck in 110 degree weather, shooting doves on opening morning, September 1st. And hmm. one of those things that I was like, I got to do. Um, I gotta be a part of it. I gotta, I gotta do that. So kind of just doing bird hunting was what it was. You know, you got your license, you went out and you did your dub in September 1st and you, you did your quail when they opened up in October, you did second season of dove, you started doing waterfowl and geese, you know, and then when I was 18, I kind of started getting into turkey hunting because our wild population in San Diego mountains, um, came back from a huge hit in fires in the seventies and eighties. And so they reopened up the seasons up there. And so really got into turkey hunting. Oh, really? Again, it's a bird. It's a bird and a shotgun. 
I didn't, and, I didn't uh, know that, man. I didn't, I didn't know, I, I didn't know even turkey hunting was like a thing in California. See, I, and, and, and oh, pardon, huge. pardon my ignorance on some of this, but yeah, that's, that's surprising. That's awesome. So what a lot of people don't realize is California is the most diverse wildlife, uh, state other than like Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got every type of elk you can have. We've got our Thule. We have our, you know, we have our, uh, our Roosevelt. We have our Rocky Mountain elk that are all, all reside in the state. We've got blacktail deer. We have uh, mule deer. We've got desert mule deer, Mexican mule deer. We have a hybrid Mexican or a mule deer blacktail. We've got pheasant quail. We have three types of quail, four types of quail sometimes in the year. We've got javelina. We've got hogs. I mean, you name it in the state of California, you can pretty much hunt it because um, it's going to be a native species. Yeah. And so a lot of people don't don't think that. They think of San Diego, you know, what? They think LA politics, San Francisco politics. They think of Sacramento politics. They're like, well, that's California. Well, California itself is a huge sportsman's mecca. We've got different sheep. You know, we've got desert sheep. We have the Rocky Mountain sheep. We've got, and so you look at California in a whole. You know, and then we got the Pacific Ocean, which you can go do catch almost any type of fish from two to two to three different types of tuna mm-hmm. to mahi to rockfish to cod to you know we have lobster seasons we can go do spiny rock lobster we can do dungeness crab we can do you know and you go to the lakes and streams we're one of the most diversified in types of you know as you guys know in idaho we've got all of the trouts we got the browns that you know the yep. the rainbows the cutthroats the, all that good stuff and so it truly is a sportsman's mecca who was just ran by complete jackwads and idiots and they're running it into the ground but so for me hunting all that stuff was kind of that that fun nature and then that's really all i did i had no desire to really do big game because of how hard it was and hearing all the stories of people that just failed year after year after year after year right sure but it's, it's not like you know we have to go out of the city into areas where people are backpacking hiking camping you know day day motorcycle riding and try to search out game we don't have doe tags in a lot of areas, so you're trying to go find a legal buck along with 5,000 other guys that are going to the same chunk of public land. Um, and back in 2007, um, I found out that I have a beef allergy, so I'm allergic to bovine fats and beef. Really? Yeah. So my body can't digest the fat proteins and the enzymes found within bovine fat. Huh. Um, and there's an enzyme that I'm actually... The enzyme within bovine fats, what I'm actually allergic to. Oh, and interesting, man. I didn't know that. So being an Irish kid born and raised on meat and taters um, and working in high-end steakhouses and you know burger joints throughout whatever, it became like a necessity for me to figure out how to get red meat back into my diet because I was sick of eating chicken and game bird yeah. only. Yeah. And, uh, so I was out getting ready for fall archery season for turkey. And I was talking to this old timer at this archery range down in the middle of a, a, a city park. There's an archery range. And uh, this old timer pulls out a, it was an old PSE bow, but it was all camouflage. He had a camouflage case. You know, this is right in rage. was just coming out. He's putting, I'm like, man, okay, this guy's got to be a hunter. If he's pulling out real stuff, not just like a, a weird bear bow that he found in someone's closet, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we got talking when he was saying he's going to Wyoming to hunt, hunt antelope. I'm like, man, I wish I could afford to hunt big game out of state. And at the time he's like, it's $26 to hunt a doe license and tag in the state of Wyoming. And I went, what? 
<laughs> and so I literally put my bow back in the bag, drove home, got online. This is what, how, however many years ago, mm-hmm. in what, 2007. So leftover tags were still a huge thing that wasn't as popular as it was now. Go on, get a bunch of leftover doe tags, call the buddy who's a fireman. We head to Wyoming. Neither of us knew anything what we were doing. You know, I went and got a, went and got a rifle at the local gun shop. Went to Walmart, put a cheap Bushnell scope on it because I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, yeah. Didn't even didn't even know how to sight anything in because I'm a shotgun guy. And we get out there and it was like the hardest week of hunting in our entire life. Finally, we both end up shooting antelope after a week of chasing antelope all over God's green earth. And uh, get home and hated the meat. Just didn't know what to do with it. The flavor, the texture. I'm like, this isn't beef, right? Yeah. And at the time... There was only a couple, there was a handful of guys who were cooking wild game. Uh, you had Hank Shaw, you had uh, mm-hmm. Scott Latham. Those are really the two guys that were doing it that I knew of. Because social media back in 2007 isn't what it was now. YouTube wasn't it, what it was now. Yeah. Um, the world itself as social media wasn't, you know, Facebook was still a thing. People like, it's not going to catch on. Mm-hmm. And, and so... Um, there's really no one to look up to in the, in the world of, of cooking because, you know, Hank Shaw, as great as he is, he's very high end cooking. A lot of his recipes are very in depth with, you know, odd recipes, you know, odd ingredients like black truffle oils that most people can't go get at their local Walmart grocery store or Publix or wherever they're going to shop. And so I started just trying to, took my restaurant background so okay well how can i utilize the flavor of this meat that a lot of people call gamey but for me it's like how do i embrace the gamey and not shy away from the gamey how do i figure out what this gamey flavor is because everything can't taste the same if you say it's gamey yeah so pinpointing that the antelope tastes very sagey right has a very strong sage earthy flavor well what pairs well with sage let's look at restaurant dynamics and okay garlic soys gingers you know, red wines. Okay, well, how can I create dishes around those flavors that complement that quote-unquote gamey taste to elevate it into something that's palatable and delicious and tender? And so, next thing you know, my family is devouring every ounce of antelope that's in our freezer. And that's kind of the moment it started. Was right then and there saying, "There's got to be a different way to treat this meat like meat and not as something that's a pheasant under glass or a specialized thing in a cookbook." Where it's like, you know, because that, think about it, still today, there's like high end wild game where like, hey, wrap it in bacon, throw it some chili, make some spaghetti. Sure. So for me, it was like, how do I find that balance of this is the meat I have to eat if I want to eat meat? So how do I turn that meat into everyday beef that people are used to and get people confident and excited to turn that deer meat into their standard beef and, and get them comfortable? and confident enough to do it. And that's really kind of where I started laying the foundation for what from field to plate was and what it became and how it grew. And then, you know, seven years ago, I quit my job from a corporate restaurant position and left a ton of money behind because I had this idea that, Hey, people got to learn from this and they got to grow from this. And I pursued this full time. And now I take out new and you know, new and, experienced adult hunters to teach them a better way of doing it. I've taught 400 brand new hunters in the past five years uh, from their first shot to butchering it and taking it home themselves to cooking meals. And it's kind of just, 
exploded um, even more so with this idea of like local war movement and COVID-19 actually was huge. Yeah, I'll bet. I was, was going to ask everyone, everyone, everyone was stuck at home. Yeah. And yeah. everyone had all this, you know, and a lot of people didn't have meat. So we saw this influx of hunters that wanted to not rely on the government anymore for food. They don't want to go to the grocery store to, to wait for a steak. And so I remember when it hit, I have three freezers full of food. And it was one of those deals where it was like, I'm calling people like, okay, hey, come grab meat, come grab meat, come mm-hmm. grab meat, come, you know, like, and all these people who were anti, um, you know, hunting all, you know, all of a sudden are getting their hunting license and saying, Hey, can you take me out? So it's been a, so it's been a cool. fun platform. But that's kind of from field to plate in a, in a nutshell was, you know, born and raised as a bird hunter, beef allergy, big game. Now, you know, from September to April, I'm gone hunting all over the country and world. So, well, I think the concept is like not only timing wise was perfect, you know, back, back just right as social media is starting to take off kind of thing. But the, the con, why I like, I think the concept is super sound is because the, the way that you describe that, where, there's there's almost like this for for a lot of hunters out there there's this i don't want to call it a fear but it's like intimidation of preparing especially like people that are getting into hunting as adults kind of thing there's like this something intimidating about wild game meat and the um the everyday use of it i think is what people get hung up on like you were saying like it's got to be this special thing to cook a deer steak or something you know what i mean and and it's just not true. Like, the, I I was told at one point, um, and it made a lot of sense. This this I, I can't remember who said this to me, but uh, I was asking him why do why do a lot of people you, you know they're they're kind of into hunting, but they're not a big fan of like wild game meat. They don't want to they don't want to eat venison because they're they, like you said they say it tastes gamey or whatever. And he says you know a lot of people try to treat game meat uh, like venison as if it is beef, and it's not beef. You can't treat it like that. But I, I kind of, and I, I went with that for a long time, and I, I understand that that concept. But like what you were saying, where you start using it in, you know, everyday things like spaghetti or burgers or or, or whatever, it, it can be. And and I love the, like I'm just a, I don't know, a hillbilly with this stuff, man. Uh, so so having somebody that has like this professional chef background. Uh, taking this game meat from from what it what it is into you know everyday type kind of meals like I'm looking I, I'm on your website right now and I'm looking at the Irish black bear stew because right now black bears are you know top of mind um, and there's you've got and I want to explain to people on the on the website which is from filledtoplate.com and it'll say like one of the tabs is find recipes by meat you can go venison elk wild boar black bear turkey dove duck rabbit salmon. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of recipes and, and stuff like that. And you also do a podcast. I, I'm just trying to kind of fill in what people, yeah. if, in case they don't know, um, and your store and your cart affiliate page about all that kind of stuff is right there. It's a really good website. So, um, but I, I like the concept of, of using the, the wild game as everyday meat, because that's kind of what, that's pretty much what my family does. Um, with the exception of, you know, I, I don't. I don't have obviously. I don't have a beef allergy or anything. So we'll we'll go out and buy a, a you know a, a ribeye or something and bring it home. Uh, but for the most part, we uh, we buy we buy a hog every year, and then the rest is all wild meat or, or wild game for the most part. 
Um, and we supplement a little bit of chicken and a little bit of beef here and there. But most most of what we do is wild wild meat. So um, that's why both my wife I told you my wife was out there on your website because I told her who I was recording with, checking out all your, all your recipes and stuff. So she's she's all stoked. Where where does the cooking background come from, Jeremiah? Is that something you've been passionate about since you were a kid, and and did you like go to school for it kind of thing, or, or tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I I mean my whole family is always going to say we're we're that the Irish farmers from Nebraska that moved to California to follow oil, and so um, it cooking's always been there. It's always been a huge family kind of affair. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, taco you know Taco Tuesday nights when all the cousins, grandparents, and you know, my, my grandpa was a pit master out there teaching, teaching us little kids how to make the perfect burger patty. Cause God forbid you buy a frozen burger, burger patty and bring it over to my grandpa's house. He'd throw it in the trash. Right. <laughs> I so, like your grandpa. <laughs> and so, um, you know, teaching us how to, how to make it, you know, he was like, okay, roll a meatball, however big you want it. And then slowly smash it down as you're massaging the corners to make sure it's perfectly round. Cause the rounder it is, the more evenly it cooks. Right. Mm-hmm. This stuff that I was like five, six years old, just being drilled into my head. And then, so it's, plus I came from a big giant family, tons of siblings. So mom would always have everyone in the kitchen helping cook and, you know, Oh, it's Tuesday. It's your night. You better get in here and help, help cook. And so there's always been that base layer of cooking and culinary aspect of it. Um, I got into the restaurant industry right out of, right out of high school, starting college, just cause it's one of those deals that everyone gets into cause it's cheap, mm-hmm. easy money. Right. Yeah. And yeah. you can work, you can work a Friday night, walk out with 400 bucks and like, dude, I worked for four hours, make 400 bucks. Like it's just simple. And so kind of sure. worked my way up in the ranks there through college, um, became one of the youngest GMs in, in the restaurant, you know, kind of where they were, that was 21. They're like, you're 21, you're a GM. And so kind of started taking my passion to looking at the way food was coming out of the past shelf and correcting the, the cooks in the back, the chefs in the back to be like, Hey, anything that comes out has to be perfect 100% of the time. Like there's no options because if someone's paying this much money for a steak and it doesn't look how I want it to look in my head or how they envision it, then it's, then it's wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I'll send it back. And so then I would go in the back and I would make up recipes during slow times or you know, when you work in the restaurant for so long, there's only so many items on the menu. And as a manager and as a you know corporate developer, you're sitting there going, I cannot eat the same food ever again, you know? Yeah. And, so it just became creating recipes, creating different things. And then people would come over and I'm like, oh, I got to cook. So I've got this idea in my head. And I was always an artist. I was always painting. I was always sculpting. I was always drawing, doodling. And so what I started doing is looking at food from an aspect of being just another medium in the art world. Mm-hmm. And how can I take this, this medium and make it something that's absolutely gorgeous? Because you can drive through McDonald's and see a beautiful Big Mac. And then you open the box in the Big Mac and it looks like crap. Yep. And so how can I how can I take what it's supposed to look like and make sure that it's presentable like that every single time that it goes out on someone's plate? And so that's kind of where it started snowballing, where I really had this passion. I, I thought about going to culinary school many of times, but then I, all of a sudden they would, hey, you're promoted. Well, I can't go to school now. And so there's no basis other than like the school of hard knocks and having this idea and passion for it. And so once I had the beef allergy and started hunting, I started looking at recipes online and I'm like, there's no venison recipes online. It's literally like how to wrap it in a jalapeno and bacon and cream cheese and, mm-hmm. or Hey, grind, grind it up and, and do it like this and a chili or, or a spaghetti or a bolognese. And, and so for, for me, it was just all of a sudden this passion of like, Hey, 
how can I take that recipe that's made for a different protein, redesign it and direct it like I would in the restaurant and make it to where it'll fit in with this, this wild aspect of it. And then I started realizing that a lot of the recipes out there were just boring and people were like, Oh man, I, I would love to do this, but I don't know how. And so it became a challenge for me to start creating recipes. And I got a, you know, you know, got a little book and started sketching in it. And then I started learning how to photograph I mean, every, every picture you see on the website, every picture you see online, 90% of them are all taken by me, uh, edited by me, taken by me, plated by me. Um, because it's my passion. And I know so many chefs out there that just like have someone come and food style their food. And for me, it was mm-hmm. not, that's not what it was about. And so I got asked to do a charity event, um, and went into this charity event and there was big name chefs there. There was, you know, Bobby Flay and fill in the blank of chefs that were doing this charity event. And I got asked to do quail, a simple quail recipe. And so I split quail, did this really beautiful, uh, quail with like a, like a green, sauce and anyway hmm. and i remember that one of the chefs came over and was like looking at it and looking at me like oh where'd you go to culinary school I was like oh i didn't they're like oh then you're not a real chef i was like i never called myself a chef and they're like oh and so they're kind of going bantering off between them like oh look at this kid in here with all these professionals the dude, the dude to hold up. They he actually said that to you that well you're not a real oh. chef if you didn't go to culinary oh. school oh the world of chefs are very very uh cocky and mean and rude Interesting. Um, uh, that's crazy, man. I, 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 regular folks never see that side of it, and and I'm always amazed at how um, apt people are, no matter you know what vertical they are, whether they're a chef or whatever. Um, I'm always amazed at how quick people can turn into assholes. I I don't know. Oh, that it, that just drives me no, crazy. I mean, just look at all sporting events, right? Look at look at the professional athletes that are there now. They think they're God's gift to basketball. Yeah. And they trip and they fall, and they're like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I'm not going to point out LeBron. but um, <laughs> And you look at all these different things, and so kind of where the turning point was was one of, this, one of the chefs. A lot of people know he passed away a couple of years ago, but Anthony Bourdain was there. Mm-hmm. And he heard this whole conversation going on, and he walked over, and he goes, you guys haven't even tried this quail. You guys are debating on the fact of, Semantics of, of this this guy isn't because he didn't get a piece of paper. Yeah, right. You know, Bourdain never went to culinary school. Mm-hmm. Half the chefs out in the in the world never went to culinary school. Culinary school tells you how to cut a freaking vegetable. You can learn that online now. Yeah, they tell you how to make how to make one of the five sauces. He's like whatever. And you know, he reaches down, he grabs a quail, he takes a huge bite of it. He's like, "This is the best quail I've ever had." Let's go talk. And so, I remember sitting down with him, and he was just like, "Dude." you become a chef when you've mastered your craft. He goes, a bakery chef is a bakery chef when they've mastered how to bake. And, you know, a sushi chef is a master when they've learned how the art of sushi making. He goes, you're a chef because you've learned the aspect of the wild. And I was like, mm-hmm. awesome. And I remember feeling so Big motivated. words so coming from Anthony yeah. Bourdain, man. And I remember just sitting there like, oh, that's amazing. And we talked for another like half an hour or so. And then we got up and kind of did our own things. And and it always stuck with me like, okay, you're a chef because you've mastered it. So how can I teach other people how to master food? How can I, how can I do it in a way that is honoring food, honoring people's cultures? You know, because I think wild game tends to lean more on the American side of culinary. Mm-hmm. You know, like burgers and tacos, you know. 
I say tacos, but American tacos. Yeah, American tacos. Right? They're, Ameri- they're, they're different than in- um, <laughs> authentic yeah, Mexican American tacos. Spag- yeah, American spaghetti. You know, like that's what I'm talking about. Like if you think of, you go you go to your classic restaurant in the U.S., like that's where our food's geared towards. And I started looking at culture in a whole when, when people are saying, oh, well, we don't eat blank animal. You know, going to Texas and these guys are like, oh, we don't eat odd dad. They're disgusting. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, why not? Oh, they taste like dirty old sheep. Okay, great. What cultures are eating dirty old sheep? Okay, Pakistan, India, uh, Middle East, all over the Middle East are eating old mutton, right? Oh, mm-hmm. look at, yep. now we're talking about mutton. So let's, so let's look at Scotland. Let's look at Ireland. Let's look at parts of Europe that are eating <laughs> mutton. And so I started looking at those saying, okay, well, if I can gear the recipes towards that stinky old sheep. And so we went to camp for, it was my 35th birthday. We went to an Audad camp with a bunch of Texans who had said they'll never, ever eat an Audad. We shot a couple Audads. I cooked dinner that night. Every plate was clean. I said, y'all just ate Audad. And wow. I remember their, you know, their jaws dropped, their eyes opened. I'm like, what? That was phenomenal. That was hot Audad. That, you know, but it's this, it's this mentality. And that's how it's been since the beginning is I'm the one that a lot of people say push the envelope in a sense. You know, when I first started doing bone in chops, I got made fun of by a lot of the culinary guys. You go online right now during hunting season and you cannot get away from people that are having those bone in lollipop chops mm-hmm. or a whole rack with, you know, with the rib bone still attached to the back strap. You can't, oh, yeah. can't get away from it, but you can trace it all the way back to me in a video that I did getting made fun of and read the comments and go, Oh, okay, well that's when it started. You know, me saving a lot of the internal organs and hearts, you know, guys are doing it, but no one was sharing it, you know? And then, so, but now you can't get away from everyone. Oh, I'm cooking heart tacos. Hey, I'm cooking kidneys. This. I'm cooking liver. This I'm cooking, you know? And so for me, it's always been like push, 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 push. And how far can you push that envelope? And anytime someone says you can't, then that really like fires it up, you know, going, mm-hmm. going to bear camp in Alberta, Canada, and all these guys are shooting big old six, seven foot black bear in Canada. And they're just skinning it out taking the skull, taking the claws, throwing the meat in the dump, you know, in the dump pile. Really? And I'm like, what? I'm like, oh yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? So that night shot a bear, took a, took a ham, sliced it up, made like a teriyaki stir fry in the middle of camp and cast irons. And all these guys are like, we should have kept our bear. Yeah. But there's this misconception from a lot of people that, oh, well, trichinosis, we can't have bear trick. Cook it. Well, like it it's the same thing Freeze as it. Uh, yeah. It dies. Uh, I I don't understand the whole uh, the huge fear of trigonosis, man. Uh, like bear meat was the main meat on the frontier back in the day. And you want to know why? It's because it's because Steve Ranella got trigonosis on his show from eating undercooked bear meat, and it exploded. Oh, you know? is that and why? So, oh, it's got to be. That's it, the real big push after that happened. After that, you know, I and, I do remember that actually. Now that you say that, it was a big deal at the time. Yeah, and so you look at you look at all this stuff, and I'm like, bear meat to me is like, I we we, we call it lamby beef, right? Mm-hmm. It's got that it's got that texture of beef, but that butteriness of the fat that's marbled into it as like a really good lamb, and so it's phenomenal. And there's so many cooking methods out there right now, like like sous vide. You can take if you want to eat a medium rare bear steak, sous vide it, which is a if people don't know, it's a, it, it's a term of cooking in a water bath. So you put it in some sort of container, like a vacuum seal bag. Yeah. You, yeah. you emerge it into water and you keep a maintained level. So you use a, like, a specialized machine that keeps it right at 160 degrees or 122 degrees, whatever you want it. Do you have... And you can cook. Go for it. 
Oh, go ahead. I, cu- I cut you off. You, you're, 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 oh, no, I'm saying, but you can be, but you can cook that bear for 12 hours and keep it maintained at 100, 122 degrees. You're going to kill off your trichinosis because of the, the length or, you know, 140 degrees. The length and time it's doing it, take that out. Hot cast iron skillet, some butter, some garlic, some thyme, some rosemary, a little bit of olive oil. Steer that off and you can eat a medium rare bear steak that's completely void of trichinosis due to the fact that you cooked it low and slow. And you maintain that temperature and it killed off all the bacteria. And it's, but people are scared. They don't want to hear it because, oh, well, so-and-so said this or grandpa said this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's a lot of the mentality and a lot of, uh, it doesn't matter if it's cooking or, or whatever topic, but this is interesting stuff, man. I, I really like the the fact that you related cooking to that artistic side because I've known, you know, I've been a musician and um, I, a lot of the musicians that I, I know, uh, are, are very, you know, artistic musicians just in general, are they have that artistic side, right? That's why they do it. And a lot of them are cooks. A lot of them are chefs like professional. Uh, and, and, you know, they're, they're similar situation where it's not like they went to culinary school. They've just got that creative mindset. And, and I think it takes that creativity to be a really good cook because, uh, it's, it's, there, it is an art form, and I, I think people lose that, and then they get caught up with like what you were saying. Um, you know, well, Grandpa says this about black bear meat or, or or whatever, and it doesn't taste very good. Do you have like YouTube videos on preparing uh, black bear uh, in different ways? Because we're kind of burnt out. We we do a lot of uh, we'll do a couple of hams, and then we'll do a lot of like sausage uh smokies that kind of thing with bear meat and we kind of want to branch out from that do you what do you recommend with that and do you have do you have like a resource for that i'm actually working on a cookbook right now and i'm working on redesigning and revamping all of the youtube so i've got so much stuff in the can uh-huh. that this summer i'm working on and then i'll start throwing it up but for black bear there's it's you can utilize it pretty much any way that you would utilize it as long as you're going to cook it right so mm-hmm you know, grinding it up, making different meatballs, like doing a, a black bear Swedish meatballs, doing um, something like that is, is absolutely phenomenal because it, it utilizes the meat in a different way, a different texture. Taking that and using it for pulled, you know, like doing black bear tamales, doing uh, pulled black bear barbecue sandwiches. I have one that's in my cookbook that'll be, po- that'll be in there and it's using um, pulled black bear meat with a um, huckleberry barbecue sauce. Oh and, man, really? And it's phenomenal because people are like, "What? You can pull it, you can barbecue it." You know, taking taking all that funk meat and mm-hmm. throwing it into a, a slow cooker with some sort of liquid—beer, wine—doesn't matter. Water, beef stock, whatever you want to do, throw it in there and let that meat shred down and break down like you would have pulled pork or pulled beef. Mm-hmm. You can utilize that in so many different ways. Like I said, from sandwiches to tamales to tacos to. Um, quesadillas with the kids to you know barbecue salads and this the world opens up and you don't think about it as a chunk of meat right mm-hmm. you think about it in in the terms of what that protein could be when it when you finalize it and and grinding up and utilizing that ground meat for fair tacos or you know i'm going to go back to the normals your spaghettis your chilies your fill in the blanks there's so many options that it comes to even like i've, I've made bear burgers before and I'll put a little bit of, uh, like, like a maple cure in it while it's sitting. So that way it can make sure that it's killing off when I'm cooking it to a lower temperature or letting it freeze for six months and then grinding it and then making it. And so I think once you start to think beyond the animal, 
look at the protein itself, your, your, your culinary world explodes. Okay. That's a good way to look at it. I've never thought about it that way. When, when does your book come out, dude? Uh, I am in the, about halfway done with it. The goal is to finish it this summer and then push it out the fall. Um, but I'm trying to do all, all myself. So it's all written, published, designed, all self, because again, it's one of those artistic things where you want, I want it to be done the way I want, want it to be yeah. done. And I want to, and I want to be able to say what I want to sell for. I want to be able to put what I want to put into it. I want mm-hmm. to be able to, so there's, there's two books in the work. There's one that's animal specific. And it's really a, a, a guide to someone that can take that book and look at that animal. I'm doing it for all the animals across the board, but deer is the very first one. And uh-huh. it's a super interactive book. And then I'm making one that is kind of my first wild game cookbook. That's not, you know, there'll, there'll be some recipes that are on the website, but most of them won't be. Um, and really get people excited to look at things. And there's going to be sauces and marinades and brines and, you know, it's going to be broken down by category. So, so waterfowl, up on game birds, you know, you fill in the blank. When your book is ready, we need to, we need to jump on and do this again. I, I, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great way to get that kind of information out there. So it's like, people are aware of it, you know, um, because yeah, I'll, I'll be doing, well, since I'm self publishing, I'll be kind of doing like a, like a, like a crowdfunding, uh-huh. um, to get it up. So people will be able to pre-order, you know, get signed copies, pre-order. I'm going to give away or talk to some sponsors, giving away products for people that certain levels they, that they sponsor it at, um, all the way up to like some big Texas whitetail hunt that are going to be sponsored or access hunts that all be sponsored. So, Okay, it'll be fun, and that'll that'll be how I'll be able to earn the money to to throw it out and, and get it, you know, worldwide. Okay, I I want we're gonna have to talk after this because I, I I anything I could do to be involved and help you out with that, I'd I'd love to, I'd love to be involved with that. I I think there's this stuff is lacking out there. Not that it doesn't exist, but it's like there's so few options. Yeah, you know, on a on a scale like this, and and you, I could tell just by. Uh, just on your website here, you've got, you know, just boatloads of talent with this stuff. And I, I'm like dying to try some of the stuff that I'm already reading on here. Silencer Central. Folks, if you want to learn something new right alongside me, check it out at silencercentral.com. I've never put a suppressor on any of my weapons, but I'm going to start now. And I'm using Silencer Central to help get me started because they walk you through the whole process to include you can ship the rifle to them. They'll thread it, they'll put it on, and they will ship it back, and you can make payments on the whole thing while you wait for all the licensing to get approved, which they take care of for you. It's a great process, and it's a great company, American manufacturer, right there in South Dakota, and we are really excited to be partnering with them. So check it out at silencercentral.com, or give them a call at 888-781-8778, and let them know that you heard it on the Western Huntsman. Hoffman Boots is my go-to boot. I love the Explorers in the 8-inch, and they've got the Vibram sole, totally waterproof, no break-in period. They just glue your feet to the mountain. You can't ask for more out of a boot, and you don't have to break the bank to get a pair. So check it out at hoffmanboots.com. Again, another American company. Uh, local North Idaho friend of mine who runs this company decided to make some great hunting boots for all people that are serious about getting into the backcountry to chase elk and deer and bear and everything else out there. So check it out at hoppinboots.com. Use promo code all caps lock huntsman 10 at checkout to save you 10%. 
I want to talk about for a minute what, what you said you had mentioned you had, you've taken out like 400 hunters and mm-hmm. and taught them to hunt and then it, it goes from that to you teach them how to maybe break the animal down and butcher the animal and then cook the animal can you yep. walk us through that and what what is that like an organization you do that through or is that just through you i mean tell us a little bit about that yeah, no, that is that's something that I created called Field of Plate University. Um, I do two classes a year in Texas, just because I know different ranch owners. Uh, we can do stuff in Texas, and it's it's dough based, so no one's competing on a buck. Mm-hmm. I've tried doing bucks in the past, and it always becomes they shot a bigger buck than I shot. Yeah, um, and the whole point of the class is to get comfortable and familiar with how to break down your animal and get the most out of it, and cut the butcher out of the out of the picture um, to save some money and to do it cleaner, better, and more effective, right? Sure. And so that first got started five years ago, um, and I pushed myself, did like six classes that year, and almost burned myself out. Um, but it got published in Outdoor Life magazine. It got published all over the place through Mossy Oak, through you name it, um, and had people from every background, age, walk of life coming to be part of those classes. And now I've, I've cut it down to two a year just because it's more manageable. Um, yeah. You see a lot of that. There's there's other people out there that are now copycatting. Again, like I said, you just start something, people are going to copy it, right? Yeah. And so there's oh, other yeah. people that are copycatting it, but it's not to the level that that mine's at. Um, I've had other people that have done both, and they're like, "Oh, that was really boring." There's um, mine is very interactive. From it's hands on. So from the moment you get, we pick up the airport or you drive into the ranch, um, you are part of the team in a sense. It's not me as a teacher; it's us as a team. Uh, we go to the range and you learn how, if you've never touched a rifle before, you learn how to use a rifle and effectively shoot 100, 200, 300 yards. Um, if you do have a rifle, we all sit down with you and we'll make you proficient on it, teach you how to how to dope a shot, how to correct, a, you know, identify. We have, I have a model that was built where you know where to shoot on the animals, talk about shot placement, where the heart is, liver, kidney, blank, blank, don't fill in the blank. Yeah. Uh, do it for rifle and archery. Uh, tending more towards rifle just because archery, it's hard to get someone brand new and get them in there to effectively shoot a, a bow, right? Sure. Um, and then from there we go and we hunt does. Usually everyone shoots it by the first day because does are just everywhere. Um, we bring it back. We do a whole class on how to gut your animal. We go through the entire gut, the small and large intestines, what they can be used for, what they were used for with Native Americans, what they are still used for around the world, the edible parts on the inside, liver, kidney, um, heart. Um, some some places still use lungs. For me, I don't. I take the lungs, the esophagus, um, and I smoke or freeze dry those for my dogs. Uh, so try to, as little waste as we can. Oh, that's a good idea, man. I never even thought of that. Uh, oh yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, you go to the store right now, you can buy beef lungs in a bag, and it's thirty seven dollars for a one pound bag of beef lungs. Think really? about how many animals you shoot that have lungs. Everything. Everything um, I shoot has lungs. <laughs> and so throwing, you know, throwing it on the smoker and drying it out, or, you know, if you've got a freeze dryer, throwing it in there, it puffs up, becomes real crispy, crunchy for the dogs. It's phenomenal. It's got amazing proteins. It's got, um, but then there's a whole skinning class, the proper ways to skin, you know, because I was saying there's no right or wrong way. There's just a way that I found works better. Um, because I, I'm so sick of people saying, this is the only way. No, it's not the only way. Um, I found a way that, this works best for me in the situation where I'm at. We teach you how to skin it on the ground, how to skin it on hanging up in a tree or in a, you know, or in a shop or wherever you're going to be. You know, the thing I, I just thought of the, the problem with like, 
I'm kind of still hung up on bringing like the lungs back and, and esophagus and stuff and, and uh, freeze drying them or, or whatever. Um, what, like, what about if you're in the back country, you know, do you still, do you, do you hump that stuff out five, six, seven, 20 miles, whatever? Uh, no, you don't, it's, I don't, it's just, it's too much. Unless for some reason I go back and I get the head and I'm looking at the gut pile and I'm like, it's just the head left and the gut pile I'll throw, you know, whatever. I always take the heart. I always take the liver. I always take the kidneys. Those are non-negotiable. I always take the heart uh, and liver. I've never taken the kidneys. So that's, that's cool. Uh, I like I that love, idea. I love kidneys and even throwing kidneys, you know, into a ground. So, you know, uh-huh. everyone says they taste like piss, but you know, if you, if you do them properly, like I love a good minced meat pie with kidneys in there. It's just phenomenal. Really? Okay. Um, but again, I'm that crazy Irish kid who is used to eating all that crap. Right. Yeah. 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 But I think once you, once you get past the, you, factor of it because that's a big factor is everyone's like you once you get past mm-hmm. that factor and you get people excited about it and then you're like this is really good um so the, anyway we do the skinning then we do the quartering classes then we do how to break down every single quarter into cuts we do specialty cuts and we teach you how to vacuum seal how to wrap depending on whichever you want um and then do you, you take home do you have a meat back to your house i i don't mean to cut you off but like you, you're you're talking the the more you describe, the more questions are sparked into my mind here, and I don't want to miss them. Do you do you have a an opinion or a preference on freeze or I'm sorry, uh, vacuum seal versus just paper wrap? One hundred percent vacuum seal. Yeah, me too. Okay, cool. I, um, I feel like if you're doing it right, it, I'm doing it right too. <laughs> anything that you can get oxygen and ice away from your meat, the better. Okay. I'm also a bit. I'm also a huge advocate on grinding when you need it. Versus grinding and keeping it. Um, what do you mean by that? The, well, think about this. When you grind and you put it into a vacuum seal bag, right? There's air everywhere around that meat. Mm-hmm. There's so many pores from grinding it. So what I do is I will chunk off one, two pound chunks of meat. And I know, hey, when I want to make tacos, I'll pull that out. I'll grind that meat and I'll use that meat fresh. Because now what I have is I only have four surface areas where there could be possible contamination or freezer burn versus the entire pack of frozen that say it didn't seal properly or whatever. And say your freezer goes out. I've had a lot of guys do that. And all of a sudden they have 30 pounds of ground that's thawed out. Yeah. And they're like, we don't know what to do with it. You have 30 pounds of chunked meat. It's still going to be kind of frozen in the middle, but you can also take that meat out. Instead of throwing it away, you can now jerky it. You can now can it. You can now cook it and shred it and re-vacuum seal it and put it away. Once it's ground, it's ground. Yeah, and that's so true. That's, that's, how I, that's how I look at all the meat. Like, you go up in my freezer right now, there's no packs of ground in there at all. There are roasts, there are steaks, there are chunks, and there are one to two pound bags that say ground. Okay. And I'll pull that out, and you can grind it frozen, right? That's the cool thing about all the grinders we have nowadays is grind it frozen. As it's ground frozen, it's actually going to be a better consistency, a better texture when it comes out and it starts to thaw. And then cook with it. Man, now I, I feel like I've been just, doing it wrong, man. I always have ground oh, no, meat in my again. freezer. <laughs> but you also don't have the time when you have little kids and they're like, hey, dad, we want spaghetti tonight. You're like, oh, crap. I got to go pull the grinder out. I got to clean the grinder. Yeah. So for me, you know, I'm, you know, and that's why I'm, it's not for everybody. So I said, there's no right way. There's no wrong way. There's just ways that I found work better for me. Yeah, there's keeps those ways. But, you know, Mon- or Sundays, I, I, I meal prep for my entire week or I write a recipe. Or I, Sundays after church, I come home, we figure out every meal we're going to have, breakfast, lunch, or dinner for the entire week. Then I go to grocery shopping. 
When I come home, I pull out the meats that I'm going to utilize for that entire week. Week, I start to look at, okay, on Tuesday, I'm going to need a ground. On Thursday, I'm going to need a ground. So I pull out enough ground so that I put those in there. Well, a lot of them start to thaw. Monday, you know, Monday comes, I cook whatever I'm going to cook. Then that night, I'll sit there and I'll grind the meat that I'm going to use for the next week. Hmm. And what, it, what that does is it helps me keep on a budget. It helps me, helps the girls know exactly what we're going to have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and, and you can really understand, if you go to the grocery store without a plan, you're going to spend twice as much as you would if you go to the grocery store with a plan. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, I'll buy, you know, it's like I don't want my wife to go to the grocery store with me because my my bill of 120 now goes up to 300 uh, <laughs> so It's like, ooh, this looks good. Ooh, this looks good. You know, and, and I'll sit there with my girls. Hey, choose a, choose a meal you're going to help with this week. Tell my wife, hey, you know, hey, what meal do you want this week? Okay, girls, what do you guys want for lunch? Okay, great. You guys want you guys want pastrami sandwiches. So I know that I can pull out a venison roast that I've already pastrami. All I got to do is, you know, slice it up and they can have sandwiches. Or, you know, oh, I want leftovers. Great, cool. So what we can do is we can figure that all out. And that really helps me figure out the freezer section because I can't, a lot of people are like, oh, I just didn't have any time, so I didn't pull it out to thaw. Well, if you mm-hmm. planned your whole entire week out, you would know that on Friday you're going to need that roast. And so on Sunday, you pull that roast out. By Sunday, it's thawed. You know, by Friday it's thawed, you're cooking roast. And so it's just, like I said, it's just that the, the things that I've learned in working in the restaurant for so long and having to prep for the week yeah. really, I think, has, has helped me when it comes to what I do. And, and we have people that they'll laugh because we'll, you know, we'll go camping. And I've got the whole list planned out. The girls are like, oh, we're having this for lunch. We're having this for breakfast. We're having this snack at the sandbar when we go, when we go fishing. Everyone's like, how do you already know that? Because it makes it a lot easier when I go there and I can pull that out. I know exactly what we're doing, you know? Yeah, and I, I, I just like, I like that whole, just again, this whole concept is really cool, especially the the fact that you're teaching people. There's a lot of ways to learn how to hunt, but to get the full breadth, you know, to, to learn how to hunt, uh, to learn how to break down an animal and pack it out and keep the meat safe and good and, and viable, uh, and then to learn how to butcher your own meat. There's there's a much deeper sense of satisfaction and, and not that I'm, you know, we, we butcher a lot of our meat and I take a lot of it, some of it to a butcher. Uh, it, it's totally convenience based. So I, I think that there's always going to be a place for butchers uh, because, you know, if I'm, if I'm going on an elk hunt and then I have three days between an elk hunt and a, a mule deer hunt, for example, I'm not going to take the time out of those three days to, to butcher an elk. I'm, I'm going to take it in. And, and, you know, there's other things that, make that super uh, super convenient to have have that butcher on hand but if you know how to do it yourself and you can you could figure out how to break these animals down especially for you new hunters out there listening the uh, the fulfillment factor that comes out of that the it's it's more of a like a holistic experience you know you you know literally just like your website says uh, th- th- from field to plate you know you know the whole line of that it's like this lineage thing or something and so I yeah I, I did a I did a, an article for Time Magazine a couple of years ago, and we did a whole research on um, how many things, hands, people, machines, things, mm-hmm. touch an average steak in a grocery store. An average steak in an average grocery store has touched 50 things before it gets to your family. Wow. That's machines, that's hands, that's conveyor belts, that's trucks, that's, you know, forklifts that's you name it they've touched 50 to 100 things that's disturbing man (laughs) before it gets to your table right and no one likes to think about that when you think about being a self-sufficient hunter 
or angler, the only thing that touches your food is you. Mm-hmm. God created it. Mother birthed it. God kept it alive for the moment you pulled the trigger or set the hook or released an arrow. You then are in charge of that. As it's mm-hmm. killer, you are now in charge of that animal and making sure that it is utilized properly and that it doesn't go to waste. And that's just my mentality on it. And I've taken out a lot of non-religious, non-faith-based people. And they're always like, they're, the way you do it is something, there's very, something very spiritual about it. Be it just human spirit, be it God's spirit, be whatever. Because I have, hunting to me is fun in the sense of that I get it, the final product is sitting around the dinner table talking about the day as we eat. Pulling the trigger to me, if I could not pull the trigger for the rest of my life, I would do it. But I realized that to do what I do and to eat how I eat, I have to be the one that pulls the trigger. Mm-hmm. But you get me in a skinning shed or in a gut pile, I'm a completely different person. My passion, you can ask every single person that's ever hunted with me, the excitement I get from knowing that dinner is only a knife cut away is why I have only ever taken meat the very first time I shot an antelope to the butcher. None of my meat ever has been to a butcher since. The difference, we look at it, you have three days in between a mule deer and and an elk hunt, is I'd be that whole entire day, I'd be waking up at 5 a.m. till 5 a.m. butchering down the elk as excited knowing that, oh man, I got this cut out of it. Oh, I wonder what I can do with this. Mm-hmm. Oh, this, this is going to be this meal. And there's nothing against you. That's just how I run. Yeah. You know, yeah. And everybody, we, everybody's we got, got, we went and shot, yeah, we went and shot six antelope, no, nine antelope opening morning a couple of years ago between the guys that were there in Wyoming, nine antelope. We get back to the little house and these guys are exhausted. And they're like, we're going to take naps. You know, it's cold. They're, they're letting the antelope hang. They came back three hours later. I had every single antelope broken down on the table, getting ready to start breaking down the cut. It, this like, was, a, this was part of your class? No, this was just buddies going out hunting. Oh, gotcha. gotcha. And, you know, my dad's sitting there laughing. and goes, you, there's, there's a switch that clicks in my son's head when, when an animal's hanging or an animal's on the ground. And for me, it's very primal. It's very, I think about, you know, the, the millions of people that have done it for the hundreds of thousands of years before us. Mm-hmm. and they took the time, you know, it's like that when someone, like a lot of people are like, I don't, I, I don't have time to butcher it. I'll just, it, you know, for me, it, that's almost an excuse. You had, you, you had time to go scout. You had time to hike. You had time to plan. You had time to sight in your weapon. You had time to whatever. And now you're like, I don't have time to do it. Mm-hmm. Not, mm-hmm. not saying you, not saying you. Yeah, saying no, 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 no. I, it's, it's... I hear a lot of, I hear a lot of people say that. And to me, it's, it's, I kind of find it at, like a little bit offensive because it's like, but I guarantee you right now, if I, if you came back and like, I don't have time to push that. I'm like, Hey, you want to go out and shoot another one? They're like, hell yeah, let's go shoot another one. Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's because there's not a passion and a joy for it. It hasn't been shown on TV with a passion and a joy for, for the butchering and for the, the breaking down aspect of it. Well, and it's a societal 90- thing too, man. Every, right. we've, we all we've known, mo- most of everybody in, in this country, all everybody's known is food suddenly shows up either in the kitchen or on the table at the restaurant. You know, they don't know right. the process. And so, you know, to me, I'm not going to get offended if somebody takes it to a butcher, but I'm, I'm also... I, I feel like there is you're gonna you're gonna be missing a very important aspect of the hunt and the and the primal thing that it is if if you don't know how to 
butcher your own animal. And don't connect, because uh, you, you'd mentioned something regarding self-reliance earlier, too. I'm, I'm, the older I get, the more of a proponent I am to for people to become more self-reliant and, and learn how to live off the land and know the process from the, because hunting isn't just when you pull the trigger, the, the, it is the whole process. And, and I think that pe- a lot of people that might be uh, dogging on this concept of butchering your own meat, they, I, I think it's because there is a lack of understanding of it and, and they haven't felt the satisfaction of loading your freezer of, of from from this animal that that you saw maybe the first time through a set of binos 200 miles away and now you have made everything happen from that point to the fact where you just close the freezer door and that freezer is, is full of meat you know what I mean that it, there's yeah. that's I I don't know I, I think it's deeply satisfying I think it's deeply um it's there's something that really connects you to the whole process when you do all of it yourself. But I also don't want my butcher buddies out there sending me nasty messages saying I'm going to put them out of business with this kind of talk. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know and, what I mean? But, and I have, because it's and not. I'm, dude, I am, I am so, I have so many friends that are butchers. Yeah, me too. And I know that it's, and it's, and I know it's not for everyone. It's not. And, and I'm okay with that. But the people that make all the excuses for it, that's, I'm like, you're just making excuses. Mm-hmm. And, and there, there's people who, okay, you know what? you really don't want to get into understanding how to make sausages. You don't want to get into learning how to make jerky sticks. You don't want to get into learning how to make fill in the blank. And your butcher friend does a phenomenal job and has an amazing recipe that you love. Freaking take it to him. Yeah. You know, but when it comes to taking a steak and cutting, you know, looking at the back leg and realizing there's five primary muscles and what steaks you can get out of each one of those muscles, you go to the butcher and he says, you want steaks? And they say, yep. Where are you getting those steaks from? Because some of those cuts are horrible steaks, and some of those cuts are phenomenal steaks. Mm-hmm. So if you don't know the anatomy of a deer, and you go in and say, "Hey, I want steaks," that butcher can be like, "Okay, great. Well, here you go." And you're like, "Man, this deer steak sucks." Yeah, that's why I don't. That's why I don't like deer. I don't like deer. Well, yeah, because what you're doing is you're having him do the the top round, you know, or you know, the the, the top round. As steaks, well, the top rounds are going to be a tougher cut, so doing steaks out of it probably not the best idea. Hey, or he does the sirloin, you know, you know, top and bottom sirloin and the knuckle roast, and you know, there's always the sinew running through it. Well, yeah, well, learn how to use the bottom round, which is going to make phenomenal cuts, or utilizing the lower back half of that of that over the four primary vertebrae on the back, which is going to be your 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 New York steak. Mm-hmm. Well, no, just give me the back strap. Well, no, hey, I want that four vertebrae. That's my New York steak. I want that cut cut out different, please. Right? Once you know that, take it to the butcher and have them butcher it the way you want it. I'm okay with that, but I think everyone has to learn what they want. Right? You're so used to going to the store and just picking up a steak wrapped in cellophane and plastic and be like, ah, oh, this is this is steak, and then you get home and like, yeah, this isn't this isn't the same. This doesn't look the same. This doesn't feel the same. This doesn't smell the same. I don't, I, I don't like your meat. I can't tell you how many guys that I've taken to my classes that tell me, oh, I don't like deer meat. I know. And at the end of the class, they're like, they're like, this isn't deer meat. I know. You shot it. You butchered it. I cooked it. You saw it. Yeah, but, you know, and, and not saying all processors, but there's a lot of processors that I've gone to and talked to and interviewed and been a part of on opening day of deer season where there's 155 deer 
laying on the guy's floor and he's trying to skin him as fast as he can. Mm-hmm. Well, who, who got shot their deer and now sitting there with your deer. And then he's sitting there taking all the scraps to make one big thing of ground. He's not just going to grind up just your deer and dirty his machine for 40 pounds. He's going to take all that scrap and then grind it through. And then he's going to portion off compared. This is, this is not me saying this is hundred percent fact, folks. Unless you know a really individual animal processor, a lot of them out there are just trying to get through as fast as they can. Mm-hmm. And so now that dude got shot his deer, and you're sitting there going, man, this deer tastes like ass. Well, no shit, Sherlock. You just gave your beautifully shot, heart shot deer that you took the time to gut with a dude that had the deer in the back of his truck for five hours in the 80-degree heat. Mm-hmm. wheeled it in and threw the floor of this butcher and then your meat got contaminated by his meat. Yeah, so all the work you just put in to make sure, you know, you got the hide off quick, you packed it out, you kept it in the shade, you kept it cool. All the work you just did to try to preserve your meat just got messed up because the butcher just mixes them up. And and I know that that happens on, on a pretty massive scale. There's only one dude that I know that doesn't do that. And, and because he has this process and I don't even use him because he's so far away from me, but uh, he's got a company down in Boise called uh, Get Your Meat, uh, and it's, his name's Andy. But Get Your Meat is he he specifically only does one at a time. But he's not like one of those big shops where he's got 150 animals at once, you know. And right. so he's able to do that. Everybody else, you know, I know, I know that you know how if if you don't take care of the meat, maybe you let it get a little too warm, or you don't get the hide off, and especially with mule deer, for some reason, mule deer. There's this thing where you have to get that hide off quick or it will taste like a freaking donkey. And um, actually, I, I don't know that. I've never had a donkey. So, um, donkey is actually really good. I, I knew you were going to say something like that because I said <laughs> that. Horse, horse meat in general is phenomenal. I wish you yes. would legalize it in the U.S. It yes. is so good. Um, and, uh, but, but what, what I'm saying, like, if you're taking all that care and you're taking all that time, um, I kind of lost my train of thought getting on the donkey topic, dude. But uh, mule deer, mule deer have a funk. If 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 they're not properly taken care of, and I know I know that flavor where I know I didn't get the hide off in time, uh, or or whatever happened, and and there is a funk to that mule deer. Now, uh, can you know? Conversely, I've I've had mule deer meat where it's the best damn deer meat I've ever had. It's the best venison I've ever had. Uh, and it was like this high country mule deer I, I shot. I killed it a couple of years ago. Great deer meat, great venison. And and so the point is, is it's it's when you've done this long enough, you can identify when the meat's been taken care of versus when it's not. And the I don't, this was probably seven or eight years ago. Uh, I had killed this mule deer and I had to drop it off at a butcher. Uh, it was kind of like what I was explaining. I was on my way to another hunt. I didn't have even three days. I was I was off to another hunt. Uh, so I dropped it off at, at his place and I get it back. I, I don't know the butcher personally. It was just some, you know, local company or whatever. And I could taste that funk and I knew that I had taken good care of that mule deer. And so that tells me that that meat was mixed, like the, especially oh, yeah. the ground. It, it's just like what you're saying. And that's why I just want people to understand, like, you're not blowing smoke. And, you know, have a, you know people have a tendency, to, they, they get their opinions especially on social media and and they just want to like talk smack about everybody and everything 
uh, because because when they don't even have the experience to back it up or the credibility to, or the know-how to even know why they're talking smack. It's just something like, you know, thing that's been in their mind for years because, you know, Uncle Ernie said it back in 1981 and it's still like this thing. They haven't actually educated themselves on it. I want people to understand, like, you're coming from a place of experience with this and so am I from a different perspective to back up what you're saying. And so, again, yeah. it's just another reason. You, you, you're butchering your own meat, well, man. There's- Something and there's else. times too, like we did a thing. Like we, we, I, again, I had some dude that was saying, "You're blowing smoke. This doesn't happen." Mm-hmm. So we were in Tennessee. We shot, we shot a good sized whitetail, and he goes, "I said, all right, let's take it to your processor." He's like, "Okay." So what I did is I took a Havilon, and I made little X's and all the primary roast, right, just through the hide, little X's. So I knew that if I was to open up that package of meat. And I could find that X and see, okay, that's my roast. That's my roast. That's my roast. I told him, I said, hey, I don't want any ground. I don't want anything. I just want primal cuts. I just want all the roasts off the bone. Okay, I said, okay, great. No problem. So we took half the animal. I literally saws out half the animal. I'm like, you get this half. I get this half. We get the meat back, right? Uh-huh. Only three of the roasts had X marks in them. Oh, really? And I go, I go, dude, this isn't my meat. He's like, yeah, it is. I go, bull crap is my meat. I said, I put X's just like here, and I open up, and I show him. He's like, uh, well, uh, well, we must have got, and I was like, no, we must have nothing. Like, this, is, you told me you're, you would do my animal, and you guaranteed it. Well, then we took those cuts that weren't mine, compared them to the other cuts that I had cut off my deer, and they tasted day and night different, like you were saying. And really? I even had the butcher taste them, and oh, yeah. And he was just sitting there, he's like, uh, yeah. You know, sometimes we'll throw all the center cuts out there and then we'll just take them. Like, oh, we'll take all the back straps, throw them on a table as we're cutting them out real quick. And I was like, all right, dude, but taste this difference. Like, yeah, that's pretty bad. Totally. I, go, whitetail. I go, and I shot my whitetail off an alfalfa field. So I'm tell you right now, that was the best venison you've ever had in your life. Mm-hmm. I go, this dude, I don't know what he shot off of a dump, you know, or <laughs> how long it's been sitting in the back of his truck or what. It's at the landfill. But, <laughs> and, and this butcher was like, man, I'm so sorry. Like, oh, and I was like, he's like, I'm not going to charge you. I was like, no, charge me. Do better. Yeah. Be better. You know, and I still, I'm really good friends yeah. with that guy. And to this day, he guarantees a single animal and he guarantees it's going to take longer. And I've, you know, checked in on him and he's like, dude, I'm doing a single animal thing. You know, he's got three guys working on one animal to process it and put it into their own tub mm-hmm. before he cleans his stuff and does it again. It can go, even go as far as cross-contamination on a, on a blade, right? Oh, absolutely. So they sit there, they sit there and they cut through whatever and then they use that same blade without cleaning it and do it on your deer you've now cross contaminated that flavor and that and whatever happened you know and so again i love butchers if you got to use them use them just understand how to do it yourself so that you can get better cleaner more effective meat yeah i'm trying to say so yeah absolutely you want to come at me come at me for field to plate on all social media platforms yell scream i don't really care well i mean you can go read it so I, I think I think people also need to understand we're not we're not like ripping apart butchers. It's it's just the the nature of that industry. They, it doesn't make financial sense to be profitable to to separate all these when you're working on these massive scales like what you were talking about, 150 deer, you know, getting delivered tomorrow morning kind of thing uh, for processing. Um, it's just from a business standpoint, it's not feasible to, to separate all that. So it's not like anybody's throwing rocks specifically at butchers for the fact that they're doing that. These guys are hardworking people just trying to make a profit. So it's, it just makes more sense that if you, if you have the know-how and the capability, uh, to do it yourself and, and there's tons of resources like from filled to plate.com and, and your YouTube and your class that you do and, and everything else. 
um, it, it, and it, it goes, it all ties back in again, my, my belief that grows stronger every year, uh, in, in the concept of being as self-reliant as you can, because we all saw what happened. You'd brought it up earlier about COVID and, and people wanting to, they're all of a sudden interested in this, this wild game meet where before they were almost on the anti-hunting side of things. And, and it was just, you know, imagine if it was a lot worse than what COVID was. And, and that is where I think, uh, again, not to sound like I'm putting a tinfoil hat on or anything, but I, I think it's important. We learned a lot of lessons in co- during COVID-19 where um, having this know-how could literally be the difference between uh, you eating that, you know, that week or not uh, in, the, in the event yeah. something worse happens. Well, it's funny. We were, I mean, I know you got to get going, you got to go shoot bear, but um, we were... We were, in a, we were at a park with a bunch of friends for a birthday party. And this conversation got brought up. This was a couple of weeks ago. Um, and we were all talking and we're looking out. We're just sitting there and one of the guys like, man, I don't, I don't know. Like there was an EMP or there was this or there was this or biological blah, blah, blah. Right. Just dudes talking at a, at a 10 year old birthday party, not wanting to deal with 10 year olds. Right. <laughs> yep. And, and we're sitting there and my oldest daughter was sitting, she's 13. She was sitting with us. And one of the guys like, man, that's like, it'd be really hard. when there's no meat at the grocery store. My daughter starts laughing and these four dads look over and they're like, what? She goes, what do you mean? There's no meat. They're like, well, yeah, go grocery stores. You know, they were out of meat. And my daughter goes, you don't look right there at that pond right there. There's 450 geese and ducks sitting on that pond right there in the middle of orange <laughs> County. I'm proud of and your daughter, goes, man. What? The guy, all the dads are like, what? And I go, yeah. I go, well, we can catch some of them for the egg. And then was like, yeah, yeah. She's like, well, that'd be easy. She's like, but I think if we use a pellet rifle, dad, one to the head, and that way it's not going to scare them off. It's quiet. It's silent. I was like, oh, that'll work. And all these dads are like, what are you teaching your kids? And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm teaching my kids that y'all are going to die and we're going to be thriving because we can go to the park and shoot a goose mm-hmm. and not be afraid to eat a park goose and not be afraid to put that park goose into, you know, you know, in water and boil it. And he's sitting there going, you're talk- like, literally, we're five minutes from Disneyland for this birthday party. We can see the, you know, the big Matterhorn Mountain. Uh-huh. And we're looking at all these ducks. And I'm like, okay, I'll tell you right now. For a fact, my daughters get it. Your daughter, if I ask her right now where chicken nuggets come from, she's going to say, McDonald's. Mm-hmm. She's not going to know. You know, you ask my 10-year-old, hey, where chicken nuggets come from? She's like, we don't eat chicken nuggets, but we make really good turkey nuggets. Those come from turkeys you shot in Tennessee, Georgia, Mississippi, California, Washington. You know, and it once you get away from this mm. idea that the, that food is fast and easy, and realize that for million, you know, if you believe in evolution, millions of years. If you don't, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. That our ancestors, if they were vegan, they'd be dead. Yep, if, absolutely. If, if they were, if they were not hunter gatherers they'd be dead we wouldn't be here today so i look around at all these you know veg heads i look at all these different rainbow colored hair i look at all this other stuff and they're screaming right i had this guy go nuts on me the other day about animal rights and you know death threats and all this other stuff and i said yeah but you're it's funny because you're driving around i went and looked at your instagram and you're driving around in a petroleum-based vehicle you're you you're talking on a cell phone you're talking you killed more animals than I did to fill my freezer just, just by being who you are as a person, mm-hmm. more animals and creatures. And so once you get that through your head, that 
everything is in a circle of life. And if you don't eat, you die. And if you do die, other things are going to eat you. And it yeah. goes around this whole mentality aspect of it that if you were to die in your house, your cats would eat you. They want to go, oh, he's my owner. They would eat you if they got <laughs> That's hungry. That's very enough. true, man. It is very and, true. And so once you get that past your head that, hey, it's scary out there. We need to be teaching our children. We need to be teaching ourselves. You need to, you know, I live in California. I can't have all the fun, fun, cool guns that y'all can have. But realizing that people shoot cattle and buffalo in, at farms with a 22 LR. Mm-hmm. So all you need is a 22 LR and you can literally hunt anything in the world you want to with a headshot, right? Mm-hmm. And it's once people start to realize that you can be self-sufficient, then, I'll, then guess what? When your numbers on Instagram drop like mine have, in your social media platform because they don't want you to have to be able to do this all yourself. You know, they want to be relied on, right? Mm-hmm. But learning how to learning how to make your own pasta is easy. Learning how to make your own sauces is easy. Learning how to make your own salsas. Learning, it's once you get away from the canned fast food lifestyle and actually sit down at the dinner table as a family, your world is going to change. And so many people are so scared to sit there and talk with their kids, you know. I posted yeah. this whole thing on, on yep. Facebook today about this very concept on my on my on my private page or not private so public but my my actual page not from field to plate page where i talked about how as parents we're so amped nowadays to shelter our children when we should be arming our children with knowledge exposing we want them to shield we want to shield our children from all the craziness but instead we should be teaching them how to maintain within the craziness and i just one had of those this conversation yeah and one of those aspects of it is, you know, we went out to dinner last night for a graduation party at, at this dinner place. We got 90% of the people sitting around with their kids, with their families, their nose was in their cell phone. Mm-hmm. There's no communication. There's no anything. Our phones become our link. And I truly think that if there was an EMP and technology went down, I mean, half the population in the world would be gone in a week. I know, and I, I don't think I don't think people understand how how much of a reality that it, that is. The potential for that is much greater than I think people think about because they're so distracted by cell phones and social media, and and all these things that um, whether it, again, it's it's funny you bring some of this stuff up. You and I could have a have a really good conversation sitting around a campfire sometime uh, because this stuff it, it's so relevant to our everyday life, and and the blindfolds that the general population has this this i don't care if it's these folks that run around with this fantasy and notion uh that they're not killing animals because they claim to be vegan uh it's it's wildly wrong it's so wildly wrong and 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 misperceived from their them their own selves they don't understand how much goes into just getting tofu to them <laughs> and, no, and tofu, how many things tofu is die. One of the worst things you can do it absolutely is and how many things die and uh just just to provide that and and like you said just a battery in your cell phone or your electric car uh you, you know unfortunately you're not actually saving the environment with any of that and and but you're you're running around acting like we're the ones doing something wrong when we're the ones that are doing the same thing that everybody else has been doing for you know, since the dawn of humanity. And so it, it's, it's such a, 
it's such a conundrum for them because I think that there's going to be at some point, whether it is an EMP or whether it is just a, you know, an, a major economic disaster like we had in 1929, or, or what if it's something slightly worse than the coronavirus? Or what you know? There's yeah. a there's a myriad of, of things that could happen and go wrong. It's going to be a freaking wake up call. I'm trying to watch my mouth for you, brother. Um, it's going to be a it's going to be a wake up call for for these people. Uh, so that and and I think that that is what it's going to take to almost reset the the shit show that is humanity these days. And and yep. I. Not that I'm promoting that, but it it is literally, I was just, to your point that you made earlier, I was just, I can't remember, I'm trying to think of what podcast I was listening to, but the dude was talking about the, on that EMP point, um, and if an EMP were to shut down the power grid for six months, it was like roughly 90% of the American population would perish from that event because of how unprepared people are and how, how non, um, how reliant people are on the government and the food supply system and the supply chains. We saw how crappy the supply chain system is just over, uh, you know, COVID-19. And, and so um, it's fragile. It's super fragile. And if, if we lose power, we lose the ability to generate everything. Meaning right. like you're not getting diesel uh, gas in, in, into, into these trucks to get those foods, foods into these grocery stores that aren't going to be able to freeze them anyway. And the vehicles right. won't even run. So it's just a, that's a whole other conversation that I'd actually love to have with you sometime. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because we drive to school, we drive 11 miles from my house to where my girl's school is. Mm-hmm. And I have pointed out, and now my daughters do it. It's pretty funny. My wife's like, you guys are so stupid. But we point <laughs> out everywhere where there's a fruit tree and what type of fruit it is and when it is in season. Yeah. When we'll be driving, they're like, oh, dad, the kumquats are coming in. I'm like, great, where are the kumquats at? They're like, oh, it's on the corner of this street and this street. I'm like, great. Because here's the deal. We know where the food is, right? Mm-hmm. Or we'll be driving, they're like, oh, dad, look, at there's an orange and a citrus and a, and a lime tree in there. Okay, great. Where is it at? Oh, it's on here and here. And I know it sounds like we're like paranoid preppers, but we're not. We're just, for us, it's a fun game for the girls. I'll point out something too. Or their friends in the car, I'm like, what kind of tree is that? The friend's like, how do I know? My daughter's like, oh, that's actually a, a ruby red grapefruit tree. Yeah. I'm like, cool. A ruby red grapefruit consists of what two fruits? I'm like, this and this. I'm like, how much citric? You know, how much vitamin C is in is in that? I'm like, oh, this much, Dad. Great. Okay, cool. So, someone has a cold. How many of those? And their friends are like, you guys are crazy. I'm like, yeah, but you're sitting there, and I say, what kind of bird is that? And you're like, a crow. My daughter's like, actually, no, it's a vulture, right? Like, yeah. N- knowing what you're around, especially in an urban environment like we are. You know, knowing that dandelions at a park are edible. Yeah. You know, and unless they've and been knowing, unless they've been you know saturated in chemicals, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But most of the parks aren't chemicaling anything. They're going to have a, have a mower go over them, right? Yeah. Maybe yep. a little dog piss, but you can boil the hell out of dog piss. Heck yeah, man. And but you look at all these different things, and it's like, oh hey, where did where did, like I asked my daughter the other day, I'm like, hey, where do all the pigeons go? She's like, underneath that that awning or underneath the overpass. Great. So what's going to be up there? She's like, eggs. I'm like, perfect. Right. Mm-hmm. So I know it sounds crazy, but it's one of those deals that if it did happen, you know, we've got a contingency plan. If something happens and the girls are at school, they're not staying in their classroom. No. They already know, they already know where to meet me, right? You know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. well, I remember one of her teachers was like, well, and my daughter goes, oh, I'm sorry. And they did like an active shooter thing in our class because we're in California, right? And the teacher's like, okay, I need you guys all to, you know, get into a ball under your desk. And my daughter lays down flat on the ground. 
my teacher's like, I said get into a ball. My daughter's like, well, if you're in a ball, there's a lot more of your body that can hit. If you're laying flat on the ground, there's a lot less overall body that can hit. My dad has told me to lay on the ground, I'll lay on the ground. Smart girl, man. Right? Can you guys can and, you guys homeschool in California? Or is that like a, not a thing? No, no, we can homeschool. But I, like, again, why am I going to hide my daughter's light? Yeah. And, and I think that they're more of a tool to their friends in their school than they are sitting at home, learning this from me, becoming, you know, like when they can go to school and my daughter shows up at school with, with venison taco meat and her friends are always like, can we try it? Can we try it? You know, and they're opening up their eyes of their friends that, that there's something beyond it. Right. Mm-hmm. When I make jerky, my daughter brings a five pound bag of jerky to school and passes it out to all her friends and teachers. And, you know, her teachers, one of her teachers calls me or called me the other day for like her first grade teacher. And she's in, but she's now in seventh grade. Hey, so my husband wants to get into hunting. Can I sign up for one of your classes? I'm like, sure, Miss Llewellyn. You know, like, yeah. And yeah. you look at it, 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 it's that whole mentality of I can homeschool my kid. I was homeschooled. I was, I, that's my entire life was homeschooled. Sure. And, but I look at it for if I can get my kid to be a leader and a beacon in a world that needs leaders and beacons, they're going to make more of an impact than they are. You know, they don't have social media. All their friends are on social media. Like, oh, we're not allowed to have it. Yeah. Yeah. Neither are my kids. You know? And, you know, my, my oldest has a phone just because she does sports and other things. And it's like, she knows for a fact, and we've told her, like, if she, if we find out she pulled her food phone out at school, it's ours. Mm-hmm. Right. And yep. they, you know, they have a time, they have a time. They do their chores at home. They earn time for screen time. Once the screen time is done, done. Mm-hmm. And people look at me, they're like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, you're crazy. When I ask you, what your daughter's been doing and you have no idea. Yeah. Well, you know, they, yeah, I I think it it makes a 13 year old still needs to be controlled. But anyway, that's off subject of food. You and I could talk for hours. I know you got to go shoot bear. So Uh, yeah, actually, well, it's my daughters. Uh, We keep talking about our kiddos. Uh, My, my daughters are on deck this spring. Um, I shot all the bears last year, so I'm, I'm like refusing to, to kill a bear until both of them get one down. And so, uh, we do need to get up the mountain uh, I think the rain has finally let off, which means those bears should be moving. So we do need to get rolling. But um, I, I'd love to have you back on, man. I feel like we just kind of scratched the surface of this topic and, and everything else. We kind of uh, dove down some rabbit holes there, and, and, and they're the kind of rabbit holes I want to talk about anymore. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I think there's a lot to uh, investigate there. You said, you know, you know, I'm not a crazy prepper. I'm not a crazy prepper either, man. I think that I think that we just get to a point where we've had enough experience to understand that there's something different today than there was 10, 20, 30 years ago. Something is yeah. in the air and, and it's just, it's just, you know, we're snuffing it out is all. And it's, it's just things to, uh, it worth, worth people taking some consideration into, I think is all it is. But uh, tell everybody where they could find you and how do people sign up for your class? Yeah. I mean, my stuff's pretty easy. It's from field to plate on everything. Okay. Uh, Facebook, we got, a, we have a group from field to plate group. Um, and you can join that and that's all that's food and story based. You get on there and you share your food, you get you get encouraged by people sharing wild game foods. You know, we have grown we started in February with me and two buddies and now there's fifteen thousand people who are sharing beautiful wild game food recipes and pictures. Um so it's a great place for you to encourage. I'm gonna get on there. Go for it. I I, oh, yeah. I just and need to get out, on there. And then we also have a from field to plate, just Facebook and follow along. From field to plate on Instagram. From field to plate on Pinterest. If you're, I have more moms that come to my classes for finding recipes on Pinterest. 
from field to plate.com. Uh, it's just really, 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 sorry, really easy to, to click it in and find it. Uh, and then the classes, I'm going to have the classes posted here. Um, usually I post them in June, uh, the end of June, but we've had a lot of family stuff. So I'm posted in July, working on two different ranches to do it at this year. And those will all be posted on from field to plate.com. You go on, you sign it, you fill in a ticket. I, I do small classes, four to five people only because it's all hands-on. Your animal, your kill, your butcher, you're taking home your meat. Nice. Um, but I'm also, I also run all my social media platforms. So if you have a question, comment, concern, get on there. I have 100% responsible rate. Um, we can talk about anything you want to talk about. If you have questions about how to properly butcher process or a recipe idea. I mean, I've got mm-hmm. 500 recipes I haven't posted. Um, so you're like, Hey, I've never heard about this. I've probably created a recipe and I can send it to you directly. So, well, I'm really excited for your future. I, I really am, Jeremiah. I think I think there's a lot going on there. I think this is uh, this is filling a void that's been there for a long time. And I love the idea of the classes, and I really like the idea of your cookbook coming up. In fact, I, I definitely want to do again do this again so that uh, we can get that book promoted and, and uh, get the, get this stuff out there. I think a lot of people benefit from it. So I, I really love this stuff. I never get I, I never get sick of talking about this topic. So uh, I learned a lot listening to you. And, and so for those of you listening, uh, that's all going to be in the show notes, the from filled to plate.com website and from filled to plate on Instagram, everything that uh, we just talked about, I'm going to put it all in the show notes. So just jump in there and you can follow them on Instagram. And I, I would assume that's, uh, going to just keep you up to speed with what's going on. So Jeremiah, I really appreciate you joining me and we, we really do need to do this again, dude. Yeah, man. And, uh, I, Hopefully, uh, you have my cell phone number now, so hopefully I get a text of some dead bears and dead girls. Well, not dead girls. <laughs> dead dead bears. bears with girls. Yep, yep. With I, girls. I, I got you. I got you, man. Uh, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm picking up. Uh, I'm, I'm picking you up. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll shoot you a text because I might have to ask for some advice on uh, butchering a bear. I'm not great at butchering a bear. Um, so... I don't know. I don't know Just why like I butchering think... a human. They look. They look. They look exactly the same. You know. So. <laughs> I've never butchered a human. <laughs> None of us have. But if you look at a, if you ever shot a bear and look at it when it's skin, you're like, this is it is, man. Uh, it's half creepy. Totally. Yep. So, awesome, man. Cool. Well, good luck, and yeah, shoot me a text if you get a bear. Sounds good, man. Uh, thanks again, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Yes, sir. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on the